again in, in our training, we don't give much help to people who lead small groups of people. But actually, leading small groups is massive. Uh, my father was in the uh, Royal Air Force for 37 years. And uh, you'll know that the whole of the Air Force, Army, Navy functions and succeeds because of the quality of its non-commissioned officers. Because they are the men who are in contact with the guys that make things happen. Uh, The army today, as the Roman army 2,000 years ago, as with Moses' organisation when Jethro had done his business, is organised around small groups of people under the supervision of a leader who's accessible to them. And as part of a big organisation, that's how tasks get done. So we're just going to look at some of the uh, gospel-shaped leadership issues that come up when you're leading small groups of people. Now, funnily enough, uh, you could be the leader of a church of, well, let's take Bill Hybels. Uh, I think we have about 27,000 people over a weekend in Chicago. They have a star. I remember Bill coming over and I was in a a conference and I thought, you know, he must be really chuffed to speak to 350 leaders. You know, wow, you know, wow, what a privilege. And he says, sorry guys, I had a really busy week. I've just come away from one of our annual annual staff gatherings. 700 of us got together. Okay, okay. so he leads 700 staff who lead 27,000 people. But he doesn't actually lead 700 staff, he leads his small team. You then lead another small team and another small team. The whole thing is organised around small groups of people achieving significant things. And that's one of the great myths that a big church is just lots of people. No, it's, a, it's lots of people organised around small groups. I don't, know, I don't know any large church in Britain today that has the, a one big meeting gathering in the midweek as well as a Sunday. They're all organised around small groups. So what are some of the important things you need to know to lead small teams of people well? So if you're a, you might be a home group leader, you might be a deacon, you might be a team leader, you might be an elder. Well, two things I want to pick up here this afternoon. And I've, uh, you see it in your handout. Oh, teams. Oh, yeah. Now, just, if I get that, I'll just go back a bit. I've called this thing 360 degree leadership and some of you have come across this you might have 360 degree appraisals if anybody's ever had one of those where people around you underneath you who work with you as peers your boss they all write sort of uh, reports about you and the appraiser then sees what people really think and they feed it back to you Uh, well we aren't just we tend to think of leadership as people who, who follow our leadership You might be a mum and you've got three children who follow your leadership. You lead south. Or you might be, you know, a deacon and you you, you help, you know, sort the buildings out. You've got four or five guys and and girls underneath your leadership. You tend to think of leading south. And it is important to lead people who, who you're responsible for to lead them well. Now, when you lead well, you can have, uh, I've got three types of teams here. There's the first one, creative Uh, kaleidoscopically creative Um, some teams when you're in a creative team you think we come up with new ideas and we implement them well it's exciting to work in a creative team but teams can also be toxic now what's interesting you watch this one 
This is the famous time when two Newcastle United players started fighting each other. It's quite unusual in a game of football, uh, in any sport actually, when you start thumping somebody on your own side. And the Aston Villa uh, players are having to separate them out. But sometimes Christians get like that. Christians are so difficult with each other, it almost becomes toxic. And some teams can become toxic. Perhaps more typically is this one. Teams become just bored. <laughs> we're plateaued. We're just, you know, we're doing it. We're doing Sunday school. Or we're, you know, we're, we're, we're running a children's club on a Friday. And we go, oh, no, it's Friday again. Oh, oh, do I have to go? Yeah, I have to go. That kind of sense of I'm doing the job, but I'm not getting much out of it. We're achieving, but it's not very exciting. Probably lost a sense of what we're about. If I ask you honestly today, is your team that you're in or you're leading, does it feel creative, exciting, achieving, or is it toxic? Or is it plateau? Well, we have to ask those ways. And what I put here is, I think one way to get teams to become more creative is what we call the care plan. And I'm going to look at that a little bit more detail. But also leaders need to think not only south, who, you know, how do my followers feel? But they also have to lead um, east-west to, to peers. And sometimes church life feels like this. So the guys responsible for the sound are moaning at the guys who are responsible for the projector. You know, it's not our button that's the problem, it's your button, it's your cable. Our sound system's working fine, it's your vision thing that's not working. You know, brrr. Or it could be, you know, the youth group. Um, the, 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 I don't know how your church works, but you know, you might have a team that looks after children up to 13, and then they go to the, the youth group. And you go, well, we did drop them. I mean, they were with us last. I mean, we, we told you who they were. You know, we brought them along, and you lost them. It's your fault that we lost six kids between, you know, young, young kids to youth group. It's not, oh, it's your problem. You've got to follow, face those parents. You know, the, the turf wars... Um, this is my turf, get off it, you know. Um, and it can be can moans about resources, it can be moans about access to leadership, who gets the money, who has the say, how come you got your notice given out. We've got, uh, at our church, we've got a thing called Activate, which is about reaching women, we've got a thing called Yorkie, which is not for girls, it's a bloke's thing. And um, so how come, how come the blokes got their notice given out? You know, I know they're going powerboating around the Isle of Wight, but that's just not fair. How come they get the publicity? Who decides on which notices get given out? Who decides who gets bigged up? Uh, if you haven't had fights like that, it's unusual. because So leaders need to learn to communicate sideways without it being combative. We need to learn to say, look, we, we have three or four groups that work with kids. We need to get them together and talk together wisely. Or we, we have people who set the hall up and then people do the coffee and the people put out the wires out. And it's no good the wire people moaning about the people who unlock and say, you've got to get here early. We need to talk, talk, talk. Now, leaders don't tend to go sideways very well. Leaders look after their own, but they don't always think of other leaders doing other things. So diary wars. I don't know who looks after diaries in your church. You might say, oh, we don't have diary wars. But you sooner or later will. Well, that's the youth weekend away. You can't have an eldership weekend away the same... Sorry, we've always had a youth weekend away. That, no, you can't. Well, it's really important. Too bad. We've always had it for the last 15 years as a youth weekend away. You can't have an elders weekend away. That kind of thing. So leaders need to learn to speak to other leaders. 
So instead of saying, this is our baby, and I don't care what happens in the rest of the church. Now, you might think that isn't a problem, but I've been to churches where that is a massive problem. People have done the same job for years and years and years, never really questioned and never communicated with other leaders. Sometimes church life gets so complicated, it feels like this diagram. (laughs) The bigger the church, the more systems in place, the more committees you've got to get through. Uh, uh, It was a young gentleman over there training. He said he's doing training. You wait till you apply for a church. You won't believe how many committees that has to go through. It's just horrific. Oh, the elders have got to discuss it, and the deacons have got to discuss it, and the members have got to discuss it, then the elders have got to discuss it again, and the elders and deacons then need to discuss it, and then they'll go to the membership and we'll vote on you, and that'll take about a year. <laughs> you know, it's like, what? What are you talking about? But we do need clarity and simplicity. Now, the one that's often neglected is um, uh, north, communicating up. Many leaders think it's the job of their supervisor leader to ask them. So, you know, if, if Ray wants to know what's going on at the children's work, he'll come and ask me. If Ray wants to know how the vision team are working, come and ask me. But Ray's busy. He's got a lot of other things on that you don't know about. You need to communicate up. And most people aren't taught how to do that. So deacons typically don't tell elders what they've been talking about. They wait for the elders to say, what are you talking about deacons mean? What have you done? What decisions have you made? Oh, we'll tell you. Why don't you tell me up? Because we've also got a lot of other things on our plate. Uh, I, I threw this in. I went to a conference up north. I threw this in. It's grim up north, I thought. Uh, I nearly escaped with my life. Um, but people, people, don't, uh, people don't communicate up north. But you do need to lead upwards. In church life, if you're a leader of ten, you need to lead up to the leader of fifteen. He needs to lead up to the leader of a hundred, and up to a leader of a thousand, and up to Moses. A few things here. You need to first lead yourself well. Well, leading north. You need to lead yourself... Although it's his, his or her job for you to succeed, it is your job to live your basic Christian life well. Whose job is it to pray? Yours. Whose job is it to keep yourself close to God? Yours. Whose job is it to bring yourself to worship with the people of God? It's yours. Lead yourself well. Lighten your leader's load. Don't assume that he's got nothing else to do but look after you. He's got lots of other responsibilities. So if you can say, I know this problem coming up, this is what we've already decided to do about it, Ray. I go, oh, brilliant, great. Thanks for... Thanks for anticipating. Thanks for thinking forward. Be willing to do what others won't and do more than just manage your team, lead it. And then another wise person put this, they said, invest in relational chemistry. I like this one. Be prepared every time you take your leader's time. I've got a friend, he's very, very capable. But there's an element where I have to set the agenda or else it will just drift all over the place. Well, that's not wrong. But it's great when he comes to me, I've got three things we've got to go through, Ray. And this is what I've thought about them and can we have some decisions on this, this and this. And I feel very comfortable. I know what... I have to go on by two. I know what my time parameters are. I know what he's after. And then I might say, before you leave, I need to just talk about this and this. But otherwise, the leader has to think about your agenda as well as his own agenda all the time. 
And if you're a leader of anything, you know that your time's limited and you've got a lot else to think about. So know when to push and when to back off. Uh, can I emphasise that? Know when to back off. Some, some people running a ministry in a church... If a leader says, look, I, I know it's important to you at the moment, but we've really got a lot, a lot of, you've really got to learn to back off. Because he can't tell you, or she can't tell you. There's many a time when somebody was having a, a real moan at me about why I hadn't gone to see them. So look, can I tell you what I've got on my plate at the moment with real people in our church? And I've got this, 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 and this. And they go, oh my goodness. I said, no, I, I couldn't tell you names. I can only tell you scenarios. And that's the ones I can tell you. So when I say, look, I've got a lot on my plate at the moment, just learn to back off. It's not that I'm neglecting you, I'm not saying what you're not is important, but compared to the other things going on, this is small fry. I don't want you to feel that, I don't want to feel it's irrelevant, but you've just got to trust me. They're important strategic things that you can do for a leader. Now there's a, there's a very good book, uh, John Maxwell, 360 Degree Leadership. It's a very good book to read. If you're in, you see... In, in Christian church life, well, I don't know why it's too much better. In Christian church life, we tend to have an eldership and members, and we think that's how all the, all the reporting goes. Okay, but it doesn't. There's all kinds of leaders. I've learned as a leader that over the years, I need to, I need to train leaders of home groups. I need to train leaders of teams. I invest in leadership. Now, in a small church, a pastor will be fighting fires a lot of the time. He's doing crisis and problems and difficulties. And that's right. That's what he's called to do. But he's also got to invest in leadership. If you read the Gospels, what strikes you is this. The Gospels don't tell you much about the crowds that Jesus talked to. They do tell you about the people Jesus invested in. The Gospels... Jesus not only spent a lot of time with the Twelve, the Gospels tell you he does. In fact, often... The crowds are just a backdrop to some lesson he's teaching the twelve. Now, it doesn't mean he doesn't care about the crowds. Of course it does. But he, he also, the Lord Jesus, as with the Apostle Paul, understood, well, D.L. Moody put it like this, I'd rather train ten men than do the work of ten men. It's obvious, isn't it? We've all got limited capacity. The only way to multiply is to train others. So we've got to invest. And so what we need to do is, is grow loads and loads of leaders at all kinds of levels, because these look after a segment of these at different kinds of levels. Some are a team, some are home group. Now, a busy, a busy church leadership and a busy full-time worker will go, do you know, I don't, how do I do both of those at the same time? Well, it helps if these people learn to lead upwards and help the leader. You just imagine how much, I don't know, I don't know what size of churches you're in, will vary, but you imagine how much your senior leader's got to think about. He's preaching tomorrow, perhaps once, twice. He's got a marriage breaking up that he's trying to help. He's got, you know, somebody's child is, is struggling with drugs. He's got, you know, somebody with a terminal cancer that needs a lot of support. Um, you know, he's, he's, his own family, this is one of his children had some problems with school this week. You know, there's just a lot on his plate. So you can help him by leading up, by saying, Ray, we've got to make some decisions about outreach next year. I've looked at some venues. I've found a place that's free on such and such a day. I think it's going to cost this much money. Are you okay with that? Isn't that brilliant? See, then all I say, that sounds great to me. And, I'll give, and let's get some momentum going about how we can make that work as an outreach event. You've done that. You've led up, you see. 
And, and we do very little training on this level of leadership. We do a lot of training for these people. You know, some of the full-time workers have been to college or gone on courses. And of course we do quite a lot of help for, for, for members of the church. That's what Sunday teaching and preaching and pastoral care is. But not many leaders invest in, in other than their own kind leadership. So I, I, I mean full-time pastor teachers who are investing in other full-time pastor teachers. That's good. But actually, you need to put a lot of effort into hungry leaders who may never be full-time pastor teachers or staff workers. If you put time in there to this level and they learn to lead as 360-degree leaders, so they lead their own followers, they lead other leaders, uh, their peers, and they can lead up to the church leadership just makes life. Well, it means these people have a bit of space to think, okay, where are we going to go? How are we going to keep going forward? How are we going to keep taking risky gospel, you know, that S, you know, how are we going to stop our church doing that? We're going to keep on doing those S steps, right? Well, if you can lead up and just, you know, anticipate and, and, and be thorough and lead yourself well, and, and that, that's massive in, as a church gets bigger. Whether that becomes church planting or whether or one church getting bigger, um, I don't think it's an either or. From what I read of your group round here, you, you've invested heavily in church planting. That's fine. But sooner or later, if your churches keep growing, you're going to think, could our church actually get bigger? Could it actually get a larger church? Or are we always going to church plant? It may not always be the way forward to church plant. Maybe actually, you know, we we keep as one church and we sort of sort ourselves out. Maybe that's the way forward. Okay. Of course, the most important person of all is leading yourself. The most important leadership is you need to keep your motivation high. You need to make sure that your example's strong. You have clear values. with a, a vision of what the Lord Jesus wants for his church and willing to work with other people, that all comes from a personal walking with God. Okay, so there's some sort of insights, I think, into what we call 360-degree leadership. But I want, to, I want to take us on to this thing called the care plan. Because um, many of us are responsible for a small group of people. How do we, how do we keep taking them forward. It might be deacons, elders. How do we keep taking them forward? I came across this. Um, it's from a man called Walter Wright. He wrote a book called Relational Leadership. A um, bit out of date now. And just there's a few pages in the middle of it where he picks this up and I've adapted it. But it, it's his ideas and I thought it was very helpful. He says this. We've got a the C of the care plan says we clarify the team's mission. We, whenever we get our group together, we always think, how does this fit into the big mission? Uh, you know, this sort of, I think it's apocryphal, but it may be true. When President Kennedy was visiting NASA, he talked to the janitor and says, what do you do? Toilet cleaner, janitor, you know, clean the toilet. He said, I'm part of a team that puts a man on the moon. Isn't that brilliant? I'm part of a team that puts a man on the moon. I clean the toilet, but I'm part of a team that puts a man on the moon. If you don't connect your little job to the big purpose of God, it's only a matter of time till your little job becomes mundane and you do it badly. Because if you keep on seeing the big thing, uh, um, do you ever, 
How many of you have ever heard Tim Keller's tapes? You ever heard CDs? Always starts with this audio is the best sound possible thing. You know, there's what the girl and you all. Oh, I can almost say it by heart by now. But who makes it the best sound possible? A team of people are saying we aren't just doing sound. We're doing the best sound possible. And this is God's word. And it's going to go to thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people, as far as we know. We don't know, but we want to do the very best because we're not just doing audio. Um, we're doing the best sound part. It's a bit like that Marks and Spencer's advert a few years ago, isn't it? You know, not just beef, <laughs> whatever it was, not the croissant, the best croissants possible. But you see, they still have a big vision. Now, if you said to most teams, I, we just do the coffee, how does coffee connect to the big vision? Because if people have something to eat and drink, it says, we accept you, we welcome you, we're glad you're here. We want to do the best coffee possible because actually we want people to feel that God welcomes them. And in that sense, we're a little extension of God's welcome to sinners. So we're going to do the very best coffee possible. Because we want people to know that God is a wonderfully welcoming God. Now you might go, oh, come on. You'd be amazed when Christians see what they do at a small level as part of the big thing. How does it connect? Those of you who work with children, what's the mission? Well, we want these little ones, preschoolers, to know that God is a wonderful God and we would love them to become Christians. And I don't want anything I do to put them off. Everything I do, I want, them to, I want them to just speak to them of this lovely Jesus that put children on his knee and blessed them. And his disciples go, Jesus, you can't do that. They're just smelly and they don't know anything about you. And get rid of them. Tell them to go away, Lord. And Jesus rebuked his disciples, didn't he? Let the little ones come to me. I want to be, I want to be like Jesus is to little children. Dave Bennett, in his... Um, survey of adult converts 400 adult converts right 80% of them remember something very significant about Christianity from their childhood I wonder how many of the people you work with who work in your team with children ever feel that what they do is that that important 80% of adult converts said something happened to me as a child that really helped me be open towards Christianity as an adult that's the big picture you see now, we're not very good at doing that. We tend to go straight on to the business. But you constantly say, what's the mission? Let's, remember, let's remind ourselves of the mission. Let's talk about some mission stories. Let's talk about some people who come into the kingdom of God since last time we met. And what did our team do to help them in any way whatsoever? Second thing, the care plan, is we agree on our team goals. We go from the, the, the big picture to say, okay, come on team, now what are we going to try and achieve and how are we going to do it? So from not like, what do we want to do now? You know, what's the big picture? What are, we, what are our goals? The specific, measurable, achievable, realistic time things we're going to do. Now I know the SMART acronym comes from the world of business, but actually it's very helpful. Specific, measurable, etc., Measurable often can be in terms of how much money. Timed, because it's really important that you time it. If you say, oh yeah, we're going to get a new sound system. You know, because ours crackly and it's putting people off. As a church leader, I say, is that in the next ten years? Five years? Next six months or six weeks? Which is it? Tell me, give me time. 
Can I give you a, give me a realistic time that you're going to hold me? I want to hold you to. That makes people make sure it's happened. I remember going to a black hole. We had a discussion once as a deacon team. One of the things, leave it with me. It went to a black hole for about six years. Oh yeah, I'm on it, I'm on it. It's a bit complicated. That's all I got out of him. What, what's complicated? Well, it's wiring. It's made in Italy and they've had some problems with the wiring. Yeah, but when's it going to be ready? Oh, you know, as soon as I can. And it's like six or seven years of crackly sound. It's like, because we weren't smart. Now, why is it important to do this? Because Christians love to serve on things that actually deliver something. They want to serve. What did Paul say to the slaves? Serve your masters as if you are serving the Lord Christ. A plateaued team which is doing mediocre actually demotivates people. We want to serve on things that do things excellently. And if you set yourself some smart goals, you might not be doing all that you want, but you go, do you know, we've made some real progress. We've, we've achieved that. We've now got you know, we've now got real coffee. We've now got donuts or croissants or we've got, we've now got a nice brochure. We've now got better lighting. We've now got a follow-up. We've now got whatever it is. And you go, do you know, that's great because we weren't doing that. We're now doing it. So set yourself some goals and as a team, discuss it. It's not like a leader saying, you're doing that and you're doing that and you're doing that. As a, there's a lovely thing about team. The team's given the task, please provide good sound quality, let's say. The team can decide. The, the leader doesn't need to tell them how to do that. Tim Keller doesn't say to the team, look, I'm a technical expert on sound reproduction. You do the little voiceover on the tape and you press the right buttons at the right time and this is the company you're going to... And then he leaves it to the team sort out. Let the team decide. Let ordinary Christians in teams decide what's going to be done, how they're going to do it. The, the, the apostles, when they handed the responsibility over... They didn't say, and this is the way to do it, you know. You start in the south of the city and you work your way up, up the Tyroponean Valley and you eventually get to those load of moaning groaners at the top who live up by the city. You know, no, they didn't. They didn't over-specify. They said, look, here's the task, you sort it. We trust you enough. This is one that uh, most people don't do much. Review our progress or review our performance. Um, do you have performance reviews at work? Probably. You go, oh, I shouldn't have that in the church. Yes, we should. Yes, we should. Why should we? Because we don't get better if we don't get some kind of review. Um, years ago when we started this, we were all very nervous in our church. So I got our, all the people that took part on leading and speaking on a Sunday. We, we, we videoed some service. I said, right, I want you to help me become a better communicator. So what are you going to do that? I said, what we're going to do, we're going to watch last week's sermon and then I'm going to tell you, look, I had a bad night the night before and I come in, I've got 30 seconds of excuses and I've got to shut up. Then I want two of you to pick up on two things that went well and two things where I could improve in. You know match of the day two? Do you know that? M-O-T-T, too good, too bad. Two things that went well, two things I could improve on. And they could hardly believe it that, like, well, what, aren't you going to be offended if we tell you? you go, no, no, it's all right, it's okay. I'll kill you later, but you know, you can tell me now. Um, no. So we, and that's what happened. So it's like, well, Ray, I thought that went well and that went well. And why only two things that could? <laughs> because there were too many. You can only take so much pain at one time. But they picked up on little things and it was really helpful. And um, we started creating a culture where it was okay to look at something and review it without it being a personal stab in the heart every time. 
Most of us, when we say, so that went well, but you could have done this better, we go, oh, personal attack, very defensive and very hurt, no, I'm not going to talk to you again. Now, we don't say that, oh, thank you very much, it was very kind, give me feedback, but actually, we, we actually don't like it, it's hard. But this is what we learn. Uh, a few years ago, British Medical Association did a load of research on how doctors, how, they, how, better they, how do they best perform when they get feedback. Now, like preachers, they found that uh, patients are virtually useless. So, uh, as preachers, you, as you say you know, goodbye to a little old lady, says, oh, Ray, it was a lovely sermon today. And I go, yeah, I wasn't even speaking. You know, so <laughs> <laughs> but she always says that. And then somebody else, he goes, thank you, Ray. And then I thought, yeah, I know, I'm going to get a long email. <laughs> and he'll give you sort of, you know, dagger in the heart, you were wrong on this, and you don't understand the Greek, and your application was wrong. And it's just all negative. And that's what doctors used to get. They've got patients who love them and patients, you know, who don't. And they found that doctors weren't helped much by patient feedback. They also found that doctors weren't helped by external consultants coming in and being paid a lot of money. A bit like Ofsted. You all smarten your act up, don't you? Like, Here's all the forms. These are lesson plans. We really do this every lesson. Yeah, right. I know. I got a sister. I got a daughter who's a teacher. You know, and uh, and you know everything smartens up. And for about a month, till oh great, we've had our Ofsted. Oh, we haven't got another Ofsted now. Um, and same with the doctors. At external consultants. Everybody would pretend to be better than they are because they did, just didn't want this all this criticism. But what they found was that doctors responded best from fellow practitioners, doctors down the road who, who learned a few things that they could share with you and you shared with them what you learned. They go, oh, that's great. Oh, that's a guy. We haven't thought about that. And you take it from somebody who's doing the same kind of thing. If you, revere, if you review together, so look, come on, come on, come on, let's be honest. What went well? Nobody's taken it as a personal attack. Whereas if senior minister comes in and says, oh, I want to tell you what went well, but I really want to tell you what didn't go well. Oh, no. Whereas if we together review our progress, it becomes a culture. We just learn to do what we do. How could we do it better? How could we do it better? It's not who's going to get ticked off, who's going to get moaned at, who's going to be grown at. But what could we do to do it better and better and better? <coughs> now, Christians generally struggle with that. But actually, once we build in a how can we do it better, everybody goes, you know, it's exciting to be on a team that wants to do it better. It's exciting. It's not, ne- it's not a negative thing. It's not a personal criticism. It's a team mindset. <coughs> this is why I said to this group of people in this last church, it was in Cambridge actually, and they said, well actually our team, we're just on rotors. I said, you're not a team. Did you ever meet? No. Do you ever review? No. Do you ever get any help? No. So you're not a team. A team will want to meet. How are we doing? Are we feeding the widows? Are the elders freed from their fear and worry about all this? Is the church disunity prevented? Is unity fostered? Yep, yep, yep. Okay, great. How can we do it better? How can we do it better when Philip gets called from the diaconal team to become a roving evangelist? Who are we going to replace him with? How are we going to do it? How are we going to do it? When teams get together like that, it gets very exciting. And finally, the final part, the care plan, and we'll stop there, is we're going to equip our team members. Who's going to be involved and how are we going to help them? Now, it can be, what bit of kit do we need? Do we need a new bit of kit? Do we need some 
training? Is there a good article or a book we could read? Do we just need to do some team building, scrap for curry and talk about things? There's all kinds of ways we can equip people. Now, if you're leading a team, and when your team comes together, you use this care plan mindset. If you go, like, we've got four things to go tonight. Let's first talk about our mission, and you know, let's think again. Let's just dream some big dreams. Wasn't it, let's talk about the people that baptised a couple of months ago. Wasn't it exciting? Don't want to see more of that. How does our, how does our team affect that? Come on, let's talk about it. Let's praise God for that. Let's talk about the big stuff. And then how are we going to achieve our goals? Let's go through it. What are the four things we want to achieve in the next six weeks? Who's going to do what? You, okay, you're going, to pl- you're going to get the coffee. You're going to brew it. You three are going to serve it up. Brilliant. Let's, you know that kind of stuff? And then we're going to review what we did. Oh, last month's children's work. Ah, I forgot to bring the key to unlock the building. How, am I going to, how, how can you help me to remember not to lose a key? That sort of stuff. And who's going to be involved? Who can we recruit? Who else can we get on our team? And the ones that we've got, what would, why don't we watch a Rob Parsons video about how to not put children off and that sort of stuff? There's loads, there's millions of them. If you use that little tactical care plan, you will turn teams that are plateaued into creativity again. You may not be able to rescue a toxic team. That might need leadership help. Remember how... Uh, uh, John in 3 John he wrote about that guy oh I can't remember his name now a brain gone dead who um, loved to be first oh we're going to embarrass him when we meet him in heaven aren't we we're going to say oh you're the man that John wrote about um, Diotrephes who loves to be first well if you've got somebody like that in a team it might need an apostle John to come and swim out so sometimes toxic problems in teams need leadership intervention but most teams that are plateaued, if you adopted a, a care plan for your eldership, for your diaconate, for your team, you would find the team begins to say, do you know what, I enjoy work, I really enjoy. We get together maybe three times, once a term, we, look, we use a care plan, and it feels more like we're doing it together. And this church, I thought was so impersonal and not very friendly, actually, I love, I love my home group, and I love my team, and I love coming on Sundays, and it's exciting. So we'll stop there. For some, we've looked at some strategy, we've looked at some tactical stuff, and we've got time for uh, comments or questions. Or well, you want anything on the back here on these last questions? Anybody say, could we talk? Could I could chip in to some of these? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I'm going to apply to my work situation. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. So I've got some notes down the side. I'm going to take in to work next week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Um, I've got, um, in my 20th well, I'm in a church that had a quite strict hierarchical structure. Yeah. And that means that um, I find myself swinging a bit of a, a pendulum. Part of me mm. says, yes, fantastic, empower the, the middlemen, and, mm. and, and that, that sort of thing, that's great. The other part of me, the little voice, is saying, be careful of a sort of a, yeah. everyone, you know, where's my position, and, and there's a sort of pecking order. and. Um, I've got more right this person's time than you as you're further down, and that's how it's more breaks. Yeah. But um, is there a. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's very helpful. How do you stop the whole thing becoming like the big man at the top, and, and, and we're all got badges on, you know? Uh, you know, I'm a sergeant, you're a corporal, that sort of stuff. I think, I think one, one way we thought about it at home, which has helped us a lot is that we, we think of home groups 
as places where we belong. And some of our senior leaders, our elders, they're just members of a home group. They don't lead a home group, they're just a member of a home group. They go there as a Christian. They don't go there as a Christian as an elder, they just go as a Christian. And they, they take part as any Christian would and should. So they re, they're relating in that home group, maybe a dozen, 15 people max, as a Christian to other Christians. They're, they're not wearing a badge, they're not got authority. There's a home group leader who, who they answer to, if you like. They're like, Ray, you were late for the meeting. You know, any problem going on? Like, oh, it's just, you know, sorry, busy. Or, we've missed you this week, Ray. I'm a member of a home group. Now, occasionally, for the sake of growing home groups, I've sometimes stepped up and led a home group. But I'm this, I realize, I've been there the longest. So I, they, you'd say I'm like the senior pastor, but I, we don't use that language. But quite often, in my, I'm just an ordinary home group member, um, and I and I serve in a couple of teams. I don't lead. I'm just I'm just a servant. I, you know, I, it's a couple of teams. I'm just a member of a team. Um, I happen to lead the eldership team. So at that point, I'm the senior leader of an eldership team, and the elders lead a load of other things, and the deacons in parallel and stuff. But I belong to a certain couple of teams. I just, I work in a team. Now I think that helps us a little bit to just make sure that we don't have a rigid hierarchy. Um, and you know, it doesn't hurt for the, you know, Jesus sometimes as an elder, just, the Bible says, you know, get down on your knees, put a towel over your arm and serve somebody. Um, and that helps a little bit. I think at the end of the day, the whole tone is set by your leadership, your, your top, if I could put eldership. That's why it's so important. You remember of the qualifications for a leader? There are 23 if you put the two lists together in Titus and Timothy. And I think 21 of them are to do with character. Two of them are to do with gifting. You've got to manage and be apt to teach. The rest of it is character, 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 character. And you want a mature, humble, loving, kind, Christian character. And if you've got that... You, you model that as a leadership team. So the leaders don't just go around, you know, here I am, get out of the way type thing. The leaders just, that, that quality of Jesus talked about, didn't he? He talked about your servants of all. You know, you, you're not to lord it over. You're servant leaders. Now I know you've still got to lead as servants, but you're servant leaders. And There's a fascinating book by a guy called Jim Collins, have you ever heard of Jim Collins? He's written, he's not Christian, he's written some books on companies, one is called Good to Great. <coughs> and he looks at what qualities mark great companies. And he's got a load of metrics. And one of the things he looks at is the leadership of great companies. And he has different levels, he talks about five levels of leadership. Level four is the big ego that dominates the company and transitions into something even bigger. He said, but they're not the top level leaders. They're not the leaders of the greatest companies. The leaders of the greatest companies don't even know their names. The leaders of the greatest companies, he said, I nearly called them servant leaders, but I know you Christians use that, so I didn't want to do that. But he said, that's what they are, they are servant leaders. And he talks about Dave Packard, who helped found and run and make Hewlett Packard one of the world's great companies. He said, Dave Packard was absolutely committed to the vision of that company. But personally, as self-effacing as you like. So Dave Packard, despite being a multi-billionaire, lived in a small house with Lino. Some of you won't even know what Lino is. He had Lino from the 1930s. He hadn't changed the Lino in his kitchen. A little kitchen, little house. Nothing. Dave Packard loved nothing more than you know doing a bit of gardening. 
When he died, it said on the front of his, you know, eulogy pamphlet, Dave Packard, you know, rancher, etc. He gave all his multi-billions away. Dave Packard was not bothered about looking like a billionaire. He just wanted Packard, Hewlett Packard, to do well. He says, and I thought, well, if Dave Packard can do that, then surely Christian leaders, can, I don't care about what I look like. I just want the church to love Jesus and touch more lives for him. Who cares? See, and I think once that starts getting modelled, everybody all the way through goes, leadership is not about personal aggrandizement. Leadership is about seeing the mission of Jesus go ahead. So you need to model it. And unfortunately, big egos can sometimes get in the way of that. That's why you've got to be really careful who you select at that level. Does that help a little bit? Okay. Just, okay, let, if we go back to the questions on um, what kind of problems does changing something in church life uncover? What, what have you found when you try to change something in your church life? What did you, what did you discover? People don't like change. People don't like change. We, we like control our habits. We like to so that we've always done that. Yeah. Don't yeah. Is that... Everybody found that? People find change difficult. Do you know why? This is why. Let me tell you, it's really important. This. Change normally involves loss. Okay? I lose something when I change. And sometimes when I change, I perceive the loss as greater than what I've gained. And when I lose something, I experience a grief reaction. Psychologically, emotionally. And there are two emotions in grief what are they? do you know? anger and sorrow anger and sorrow when I lose something that's valuable to me something that I love when I lose it I can't help but experience a sense of loss and loss is always anger and grief uh, anger and sorrow remember Jesus at the, at the tomb of Lazarus he wept and he was deeply troubled. That's, that's, that's mild. Jesus was deeply angry at the presence of this terrible evil called death. And that's a grief reaction. Now, it's obvious when you lose someone. But you see, when you lose anything that you have an, an, an emotional attachment to. So our church changed its name. We've changed our name twice. We went from Bedford Evangelical Church. When we moved to a part of Bedford, we became Kempston Evangelical Church. And then I'd found out that people couldn't even say the word evangelical. Uh, the girls on Viking Direct. You know Viking Direct, we get your station. They, they, you're Kempston Little Little Church. I said, yeah, yeah, that's us. Yeah, so Little Little Church. I thought, if the non-Christians can't say it, and then they think that we're American TV evangelists anyway, we better change our name. We had good reasons to change our name. But as we changed our name, some people, do you know, Ray... It's always been Kempston Evangelical Church to me. You know, do we have to change this name? Aren't we losing our doctrinal integrity? No, no, we're not losing our doctrinal integrity. It's just, are we, you know, so people experience, so some people reacted sadly. Oh, what a shame, you know, this is our identity. This is who we, we've always been. In fact, people didn't call us Kempston Evangelical Church, they just called us KEC. And I said, oh, 
Oh, do we have to lose KC? So sorrow. And others are like, this is terrible. We're going to lose our identity. You know, we're evangelicals, right? We've got to tell people we're evangelicals. So look, we're not, not evangelicals. Oh, this is a slippery slope. This is it. You know, in five years' time, we'll be denying Jesus and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> you see, some people saw it as sorrow. Some people saw it as grief and anger. Sorry, anger. And those reactions will come on anything you change. Anything you change. So you change the time you meet in. It's half past ten. It's always been half past ten. My body's wired for Sunday morning half past ten. You know what? It's stupid. And everything you touch, everything you change, if it's something people slightly attached to, the moment you touch it, they experience the loss. Before they experience the benefit, because the benefit hasn't come yet, has it? Just the loss. So we're called Grace Community Church. There's no, I said, do you remember the time we used to be called KEC? They go, wasn't that weird, Ray? Wasn't it? Weird? Could you think we ever used to call ourselves like it? Nearly was like KFC. I know it's mad, isn't it? But you wouldn't believe the grief and the anger and the frustration. We had a members meeting. People who like come out with all this stuff. However, we managed to change the name of our church. I don't know. But now everyone goes Grace. I love coming to Grace Community Church. I love Grace. Thinking you didn't say that a few years ago. But you see, now the benefits has kicked in. Now you need to just know that. So every time you change anything, there'll be a sense of loss, which is always grief, sorrow and anger. And you need to have to understand the sorrow and sympathise and just learn how to play the anger down. Soft answer turns away wrath. Don't be surprised if somebody kicks their heel. You know, that's because they're experiencing some kind of grief. Now, in church, depends what you change. But you know, people invest a lot. It might be a role. It might be some kind of public acknowledgement. It might be decision-making power. It might even be remuneration. We've decided to change our children's work. We no longer need the youth worker. You're fired. Oh, no. You know, some people get really cross at that. Understandably. See, so almost anything. But because people invested, and the longer they've been in the church, the more they've invested in it. So it has deep emotional memory attachments. And when you change it, that feels like it's all gone. Now, also, too, with younger people, even middle-aged people, they haven't yet learned this lesson. Only to God does God know all things. Only God knows all things all at the same time. In our lives, actually, our lives are all about saying goodbye to something in the past. There's nothing further away than yesterday. Is there? Nothing further away than yesterday. You can't go. You can't, you can't redo it. So as you get older, you get to learn the lesson of saying goodbye to things and not letting it destroy. But when you're young, hold on to it, Ray. It's got to... So look, actually, that was a phase. When we were 12, there was pluses and minuses of being 12. There were pluses and minuses when we were 100. There's a pluses and minuses when we were 400. God willing, there'll be pluses and minuses when we're 1,000. But we can't freeze it. And there's times we have to say goodbye and hello. And that's not easy. So that's why change has all that emotional baggage and a wise leadership will say, look, don't get phased by it. Don't take it as like a head-on criticism. Just understand that's how people tick. So how do you help them make those? So you talk about not so much where you are, what you're going to change. Where do we want to be? So you, if, you, if you want to get from here to there, you want to talk about what are the great things of over there and how you have to change some of this to get there. Simple as that. Whereas we tend to say, oh, look at all the problems, oh, don't change anything. Do you know what? Don't, don't we want to... And of course, over there has to be the picture of those who are not already here. That's what Christians get motivated by, isn't it? It's about those who are not here. We want them to be there, don't we? 
Now that might be church plants or it might be in a bigger church. But you've got to pay. I said to a lady once in our church, Tina, do you want to be in a church of a thousand people? She said, oh, right, that'd be awful. Oh, I can't imagine it. Oh, right, what are you talking about? I said, Tina, that is just your husband, Clive, and your daughter, Laura, and your son, Darren, getting converted and sitting with you. So the day you pass the bread at communion, you're passing it to Clive. I said, right, I'd love that. That's what it is. That's what a church of a thousand people is. It's just you times three, and that's true for us, everybody. She said, right, I can't. That would be phenomenal. See, what? See, we could paint at the point of, oh, you want to be a church of a thousand people. But once we started talking about what a church of a thousand people really was, she said, I love it. So what's got to change in Tina? Well, I suppose, Ray, I might as well contact with you. I've known Tina for many years, and she's led to faith through my wife, Jenny. I suppose I won't see you and Jenny as much, but hey, that's okay, because... You'll be talking to my husband, Clive. <laughs> See, that, that's how you do it, a little bit. Leaders, I guess most of you leaders, what, what are some of the pressures you feel as a leader? In, I mean, we talked about changing things. What are some of the other hassles that leaders face? Pressures and problems that you've ever experienced? Yeah? Do I feel a little bit too much responsibility for... If a particular person is struggling, it's like your own child, you really, you can't make them yeah. change. And I, I think accepting it when it's not free, well, etc. And it's necessary seeing somebody make a bad decision can be hard. So I think that's, I feel that's a... Yeah, the kind of personal consequences of some of this stuff. Mm. Uh, being out of your depth. Um, or more. Well, I think just acknowledging. As a, a guy, I heard a church leader talk last week. He said, so many Christians, uh, they said they're, um, he said they're beads and sandals Christians. Said, well, what's a beads and sandals? He said, they're hippie Christians. They're, they're painting an ideal picture of everything just being full of love, love, love. So the real word is messy, isn't it? It's just messy. And, he, and, and Dr. Schaefer used to have this very, very, I found very helpful. If it's perfection or nothing, if that's how you set it up, there'll always be nothing. So you can have significant healing. You can have substantial progress. But if it's perfection or nothing... So if our home group has no problems, oh, then I'll belong. Well, you never belong to home group, will you? If the church has got no hassle, no conflict, no difficulties, oh, that's when we'll be, you know... So, well, it's not how it is. Church life in the New Testament is, is messy church. Uh, and, and leadership's never easy. Perfection or nothing. Don't, don't do that, you know... Perfection or nothing thing. And some Christians are sort of slightly romantic, you know. Sort of romantic view of church, romantic view of what, you know. And I think perhaps in Britain in particular, we tend to identify small as beautiful and large can't be. Just impossible. And I think we, we you know, I don't know, slightly... I've, a lot of the stuff on church is growing is from America, you know. And it doesn't, I'm not, not, not in criticism, it's just a different world, really. So, even Tim Keller, who I hugely admire, uh, because he's, he's working on tough, secular, East Coast liberal, North 
eastern USA. When they church plant, from a congregation of about 6,000, they church plant with 300 people. It's like, oh, great. You know, it's taken me 30 years to get our church that size. Not me, but our church. It's like 30 years. And they plant with 300. Driscoll plants with about 1,000, doesn't it? Like, you know, you get all this stuff from Seattle. Do you know, it's so weird, isn't it? Seattle is the most unchurched city in the USA. You know, I went there because it's a tough place to be. Only 30% of people go to church in Seattle. 30%, that would be, in Bedford, 55,000 people would be in church. You know, it's like, whereas we, we're struggling with, I don't know, 3% now go to church in the UK, and some parts of the UK it would be all oh, well under 1%. It's a different world. And so the, the literature, so we get a little bit kind of, oh, here they come. You know, it's all this big church stuff. And we become a little bit small as beautiful, <coughs> small as intimate, small as personal, small as relational. That's a perfection or nothing thing, isn't it? A little bit. I think sometimes we just say, well, maybe we have to face some of the challenges of growing. Could it be that our church could grow a bit bigger? Because actually that would be a better use of resources than planting lots of little ones. That's just worth throwing it out. Some similar questions that, really, but especially in, on, in one of the church plants. That's yeah. Um, you've got people in teams doing stuff that they're not particularly gifted for, don't yeah. you want to do. So I think they see the, the team's mission yeah. and they understand why you want to do children. Why yes. Have a Sunday school. Yeah. And we all think it's really important. So we do it even if we don't really know what we're doing. Yeah. And certainly wouldn't be involved in that in a, in a, in a large in a, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. It's just thinking about yeah. some of those things with, with you know, we're not going to have perfection. No, no, no. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's, that there, are, there are important dynamic and aesthetic issues that kick in at different sizes. Uh, I mentioned I wrote in the book, the first chapter is looking at churches of different sizes and what are the different pluses and minuses. So typically in a small church, everybody does a bit of everything, everybody's in it together, we have a tremendous sense of camaraderie, because we're all doing a little bit of everything. We don't do anything well, but hey, it's great to be together. Uh, so we all, um, we all do a bit of coffee, do a bit of children, do a bit of this, bit of, and that's great. And actually that creates a lot of bonding together and a deep sense we're in it together. Because the challenges are huge and somehow God is just using us 15, 20, 25, 30 people. And we're, wow, you know, it's, and, and relational bonding is great. And that's the plus. The minus is, is that the aesthetics aren't always great. You know, I mean, I've sometimes been in places where I think, oh no, I'm going to have to lead the singing this morning. Oh no, I, I sound like a strangled cat. And I'm the best there is. Oh no, the singing. If any, visitor, <laughs> if any visitor comes in, they're going to die. I'm going to die with embarrassment. They'll never come again. That's how it feels. As you get... So, you're right to say, well, how can we really work this out? I still think it's wise having a team mindset uh, because the lovely thing about team is that we do cover one another's weaknesses better than if I was doing it on my own. You know that little phrase, team together, everyone achieves more. Now, if you look at the dynamics of team, individually, everybody would achieve more. But my weaknesses would be much more exposed than, than in a team. Actually, in terms of energy put in, the team probably achieves less than each individual on their own. But... Because we're not all omnicompetent, a team achieves more because we all cover one another's weaknesses, even when it comes, say, to children. If you left, just left children's work with me, I'd be absolutely useless. But when I put together with a few others, well, I could do the song and you make the, you get them a cup of coffee, you know, they'll have the 
orange squash and, and you know, you make some attempt at a game, well, the three of us can actually do something that I couldn't do on my own. Okay, it's better than nothing. And if you do have a team mindset, even if you can't have a fully developed team structure like a big church would, the team mindset of look at what looks our mission, how do we really do it, and so on, that helps people achieve more. But you're certainly right. As a group gets bigger, you get fewer... Uh, in a small church, everybody does a, a little bit of everything. And the real trick, the really difficult bit, is when you engineer somewhere around the 120, 130, 140 people you go from everybody doing a little bit of everything to a few doing a little of everything. Uh, all doing a little of everything. So everyone doing a, a, everything. You do, everybody does something, but nobody does too much. And you get them into teams. Now that, that's a leadership re-engineering that has to take place if the church is to keep growing. It has to develop Act 6. You see, up until that time, the apostles were feeding, feeding widows, preaching, preaching, praying, visiting people, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, the whole thing began to creak. And they go, do you know what? We've got to organise differently. We need teams. Now, we just told about one team, but I bet by the time, you know, they'll soon work out there was other teams. Um, and that's a difficult transition phase because a church can exist from small to medium on a lot of encouragement and everybody doing things, but then it, grands, it begins to creak. And what you find is the visitors like it. And they go, oh, we love coming to your church. You just do wonderful things. We just like to come and enjoy it. And somehow you need to get the fringe people engaged. And you do it by saying, hey, well actually our whole church works around teams. and We've got some really need you on this team. Could you know this? That's a difficult phase. Does that, does that kind of resonate a little bit? It's called the awkward sized church. The awkward sized church is when you go from one leader working like an idiot spinning all the plates with a lot of core people working like idiots spinning all the plates to a different size and structure where you have a leadership team and loads of other teams and nobody does too much nobody knows all what's going on but lots and lots and lots of teams are working to take it forward that's called the awkward size church and getting through that that kicks in at around maximum 150 to about 300 something odd people it's called the awkward size church and then much over 300 400 people kind of large Small, large, but large church. And all large churches are not made up of a core of people working like idiots. They're all made up of loads and loads of people in teams, organised, led well, to just achieve a lot. And that's why they look like they do achieve a lot, because they're well organised. And somewhere between 100 to 400, you have to make that change of how you set up teams. You can have an implicit team structure in a small church, but it has to become more and more explicit as you get bigger. And you might spawn a whole load of teams to do all kinds of things as a church. And that, it isn't easy to accept. Because if you're, if you're in a small church, you'd visit the old lady in hospital. You'd help with the children's work. You'd, make the, you'd do a bit of everything and you feel valued. In a big church, say, you don't need to go and visit the old lady in hospital. We have a team that does that. And you go, that seems so impersonal. I mean, surely I ought to still go and visit all the old people in... Well, in a church of 5,000, there might be 60 people, a full-time job visiting in hospital. So a team will do that on behalf of the church. And you have to be trusting enough that other Christians are being used by God to do what we once all did, they now do on our behalf. Because I'm doing something that, that hospital visitors don't do. I'm working with the children, for example. That's what I'm saying. And that's uncomfortable. 
Because in a small church, I used to visit, I used to do this, I used to do that, I used to do that. Now I have to trust other Christians <coughs> doing that aspect of church life that I once did. I've, I've got to tr- and I just concentrate on the bit that God wants me to do well. And that's a kind of mindset change, and it's not easy. What time? Finished? Five minutes? Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry, I didn't realise that time, so I, finished, I thought we finished at three. Yeah. Lots of this can be learned, but some of the gifts in your plan next year, and you've already said that some other focus, particularly through Bible teachers, let alone just having them more Christians. How much of it is a sort of a gifting thing, and how much can be taken off? Some people just struggle with anything. Yeah, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Um, you know, earlier we had that uh, prophet, priest, and king thing, and, and some are more gifted in some areas. What I think we can say is, Whatever you have, you can strengthen. Okay? So you might not be a great teacher, but you could get better at communicating the gospel or the Bible. You may not be great with people, but you could learn some basic listening skills. You may not be the most wonderful you know, leader of 50,000 people, but you could lead your family a little bit better than you do now. That kind of thing. It, it, it seems to me that the genius of the New Testament was... When you work alongside more experienced Christians and they intentionally help you, you can go a lot further than you think you can. I mean, just... It can work by osmosis, almost. I just, I just watched the way he led the meetings. I just, but it's much better if it's intentionally done. Mentor to... to uh, well, nobody's agreed on the next term. Mentory, you know, training or whatever. Jesus intentionally trained the twelve. Now, when you look on the f- surface of it, you go, would you ever have chosen those guys to leave behind when you've gone back to heaven? Do you know? You kind of think, probably not. But the Lord Jesus said, no, this is what God wants my father. I, I prayed all night before I chose these ones. And I've invested, and I've equipped them with the Holy Spirit. And that investment, intentional training, went an awful long way. So some of these things, I think, if you get alongside other leaders and they intentionally invest in you and talk it through with you, you, you begin like, okay, some of it is skills. Like, the, the problem about it, it's a gift. That's it. Got it. You haven't got it. Too bad. It's a bit all or nothing. You've either got it or you've not got it. Well, it seems to me that under God's grace, he can strengthen us and he grows. Just as we grow, I mean, why do we go to seminary to learn how to handle the Bible? We learn. So, but then some people are just natural great communicators uh, for all kinds of reasons. So, I think it's a both and again. But I, I, I myself feel because our default mode is say it's a gift, and we are very nervous about skills because skills can sound like egos and all the rest of it. I would say, well. Paul, all the, all the time, are grabbing guys and come and work with me. And when you see Paul intentionally teaching Timothy, teaching Titus, teaching, teaching Silas, all the rest of it, he's constantly... Now, they're never going to be who he is. Timothy, even at the end of his life, is still a little bit, you know, not what... You know, he's got a long way to go. But probably can get more, and, and that's where this whole work together in a team, if you're doing it intentionally and consciously and and there are skills and tools out there. I mean, even that care plan, honestly. I, 
I was 20 years into my ministry before I discovered that. And it's really helped our church enormously. So don't waste what I've just given you. You know, Walter Wright found out the hard way. I found it out even harder. Than, and it's, that's gold dust. You know, if you were a leader of almost any capability and used that little tool, that tool will take you a long way. So I think there are things like that that can help us.